Father, take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Today was supposed to have been the annual parish room meeting. Ain't going to happen, but we are postponing it four weeks, and I hope it will happen at that time. We do have an annual parish report, a lot of good things in there. I'm very excited about what's happening in this church. One thing that's listed in there is that we are renovating a committee that had become more bun and is now coming back to life again, and that is the missions committee. How good that on Mission Sunday we are renovating the missions uh, committee. More on that anon. But I do want to talk about missions. I want to talk about missions, not just because of the committee, but that's something that belongs to the life of the church. Now the problem, when I was growing up, I never heard anything about missions. It, it, it was non-existent. I remember one fair we had one summer to raise money, and apart from that, for the whole youth, I never heard anything about mission. And yet, and yet the church is called to mission. We're going to visit that theme here. Now, a lot of what the church does is not mission. We do youth ministry. We do visitation of the sick. Uh, we do Christian education. All that is good. That is not mission. Mission, this is a working definition, Christian mission is when the Christian community engages the non-Christian world. Now that might happen in two ways. It might happen with social outreach. It might also happen with evangelism. We could look at the Sermon on the Mount. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays forth the character of a disciple. That's the Beatitudes. The very next thing he does is he gives a job description to you and me, not because they're clergy acolytes, to you and me. He gives a job description to us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now what does that mean? Light is a symbol of truth, and so it is the work of the church to bring truth to a world that is resistant to the truth, that prefers darkness to light, the light that God is, the light that God is a creator, the light that God is a provider, a light that God forgives humanity when they fall into sin and repent and seek to return to him. That is the evangelization of the world. That is one of the missions. That is, you are the light of the world ministry. You are the salt of the earth ministry is the fact that we have a social ministry to care for people who are not believers but still have a hard time with life. Life is hard. It's hard for believers. It's hard for non-believers. And that is symbolized or set forth in this picture of Jesus as salt. Uh, that, That bears some explaining. I've heard so many sermons that say that What Jesus meant when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he says, you're the people who give spice to life. Now, I believe that. I think that's true. But it has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. Salt is an agent of preserving food from rotting. Little Jesus growing up in that kitchen in Nazareth with Mary and his Uh, half-brothers and sisters running around, would have seen this sight frequently with Mary with perhaps four 
or six or eight little tiny, not larger than two or three gallon uh, buckets, not even buckets, little casks, little wooden casks. And what she would do is she would take some animal that she has just slaughtered or maybe she's bought some meat at the meat market and she would lay there at the table and very carefully cut it into long strips and she would lay them out in a line and then she would scoop and she would sprinkle salt over it and now she would cut some more and lay them out the opposite way, warp and roof, and now she would sprinkle some salt on them and all the way till all the meat was cared for. And then also the fruit, and also the vegetable. And she would have at least three uh, uh, little casts to do that with. She had one that was just salt all by itself, so when they came off, she puts the salt into there, and then she might have more for other foods along the way. It was the refrigerator of the first century. And Jesus is saying, you Christians, you disciples of mine, that is what you are going to do. You are the people who keeps the world from spoiling, from going bad. And we do that with counseling of non-believers. We do that with paying bills, rent, traffic, all, uh, uh, all sorts of things we do for them. That is our job. And why is that our job? Because that was Jesus' job. We have two accounts of the Great Commission. I suspect most of you are familiar with the Matthew version of that, going to all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and commanding them to obey all I've taught you. But there's also the John version of that. In John chapter 20, on the night of Easter, Jesus appeared to his disciples. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he commissioned them, and he said, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now that word so is picking up the notion that we are to be doing ministry in the way that he did ministry. We get not just a job description, your salt, your light, but we also get a job description. And what is that job description? It's the words of the servant of the Lord. Now, those are five songs from the book of Isaiah. I preached on First Sunday of Epiphany how Jesus gets the title of Christ and the words from heaven, and he gets the job description from Isaiah, and he splices the two together as if to say, you are the Christ, you are to save Israel, but you will save Israel by being the servant of the Lord. And then he says to us, just as you have done that, so I will do that. Let me back up a little bit. Uh, the bishop was here last week and preached the first half of this story, and he said there's a second half coming, and then he cheated and actually stole most of my text for this week, so a little bit of this is rerun, but the bishop can do whatever he wants. But what he said was that Jesus preached a sermon and they didn't like it. Actually, that wasn't true. They did like it until he made personal application. And then when he applied it, then they didn't like it. Then they wanted to kill him. And why? They liked the good news in general while it was vague. But as soon as it got applied to a particular group and wasn't vague anymore, then they were angry. And what this anger was about was the darn Gentiles 
Has anybody here actually been to Nazareth? There was about half a dozen. Anybody been to Nazareth? A handful. Yeah, about the same number from the early service. And if you've ever been there, you know when you're standing at one porch, sort of in the courtyard, who knows exactly where these people would have been staying with Jesus. But it's, it's on a very hilly thing, and it goes down, and then it comes back up, and right over there, maybe four or five miles away, is a Gentile village which was built there in the second century in order to claim the geography and say the Gentiles have claim on this land. And that made the Jews mad because they thought it was their land. And so every time they looked over the horizon and saw this village, it was just a poke in the eye. Now Jesus preaches about ministry to the needy, whether it's light ministry or salt ministry, but it doesn't go to those people. And did you Did you catch how Jesus, you know how I speak hyperbolically, did you catch how Jesus cheats in his sermon? Because when he quotes from the book of Isaiah, they give him uh, the scroll of Isaiah, he turns to Isaiah, what we call chapter 51, verses 1 and 2, and he reads that, and it's good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captive, the opening of prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, this is all good stuff. Yay, yay, yay. Hooray, this is good stuff. We're the good guys. The next half verse continues to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus leaves it out. And right there is the Gentiles. The day of the Lord's favor is here, and we need that, and we deserve that because we're God's people, but they're not God's people, and they're going to get the vengeance. And so there's, there's isolation between, what are we going to call it, between us and them. And we do that all the time. We Christians do that in our own time. You know, I really enjoyed some years ago, it's over a decade, I think, the TV show Lost. Anybody remember the show Lost? That was a lot of fun. And there are people they discovered who lived on the other side of the island. And what did they call the people who lived on the other side of the island? Do you remember? They called them the others. They're not us. They're others. And we do that all the time. Human history is full of the others. I lived in England, and doggone it, there were the Irish and there were the English. There were the Scots and there were the British. You can go other places of the world. There's Spanish and the Basque. We do it not only nationally, we do it racially. There's blacks and there's whites, or Puerto Ricans, or Koreans. Us and them. Us and the others. We also do it in terms of economics. Uh, Somebody is basically defined, and most people follow that, when we talk about social classes, there's three classes, but within each class, there's three divisions. So there's upper, upper, middle upper, lower upper, upper middle class, that's where I am, middle middle class, lower middle class, upper working class, middle middle uh, lower class, and lower lower class. And we get all of our, 
our our words in a row and we decide where we are and those people are the others along the way. And the purpose of religion becomes in our mind to defend ourselves and fortify ourselves. And why do they want to kill Jesus? His first sermon, it's a good sermon and he preaches a good message and then he applies it. And you heard that in the lesson, gospel lesson is read today. He says, look, you all know your Old Testament. He didn't say Old Testament. You all know your Bible. Um, In the days of Elijah, there were many widows, but only one widow got a miracle from Elijah. She got the oil, and it didn't give out during the entire famine. She kept going and pouring and pouring and pouring. It got her through the famine, but she wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Gentile. And then, in the next generation, we have Elisha, and he performed a miracle of healing, but it wasn't for any Israelite or Jew. It was for Naaman, who's not only a Gentile, but he's an enemy guy. He's a general. We know he's a general because He has a slave who's a Hebrew woman who was kidnapped during a raid he made. So he's raiding Israel. And he gets the miracle of having his leprosy cured. God is blessing the others. We all love ministry until it blesses the others. And then it makes us mad. And don't take my word for it. Read the scripture from Luke. They tried to kill him. They took him to the brow of the hill to kill him. They didn't succeed. Jesus passed through, but not because they didn't try to kill him. So Jesus is coming with that kind of message to people. They don't want it. And I think I I was tempted to substitute a reading uh, for the Acts of the Apostles instead of the 1 Corinthians passage about the church at Philippi. I just am fascinated by this church. In fact, I'm going to uh, I, I was telling somebody at Sunday school that every church I've gone to as an interim, I'm going to teach them 10 Greek words and 5 Hebrew words. So I'm going to give you two uh, uh, Greek words here. And the first word is the word Catholic. And the church in Philippi is Catholic. It's Catholic in the sense that it's all over the place. It's all over the place in terms of nations. It's all over the place in terms of social status. It's all over the church in terms of education. It's just all over the place. Because you get, first of all, uh, uh, Lydia of Theatira, and she's loaded. She's a rich gal, and she's from Asia Minor, and she's here, and she is the founder of the church, and the church ends up meeting in her house. You get, secondly, the centurion. He would have been a retired centurion. That's who's the prison guard. And he would have been probably from Rome. And he's middle class. And then you get the slave girl. We're not told she became a believer, but I think we're led to suppose that. And she's lower class. And she's not educated. And she's probably a local girl. And who belongs to the church? All of them. All sorts of and conditions. There is no other in the mission that we are doing. This isn't about us. It's about everyone. And 
the church came up, they made up a word. I don't think it existed before the church comes along in the uh, beginning of the second century. They say the church is according to the whole, according to the word kata, whole, holos, kata, holos. You put that together, you get katholikos, according to the whole. Are you a rich people's church or a poor people's church? We're a Catholic church. Are you a church for local folk or Roman folk or Asia Minor folk? We're a Catholic church. We're for all. Are you for upper class, middle class, lower class? We're a Catholic church. And our ministry and mission is to be Catholic in that sense. The other word I want to teach you from Greek is the word uh, apostolic. This is a fascinating word. Uh, the word and, and these words both show up in our creed, don't they? There are five, four marks of the church. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. The church is apostolic in one sense, that it descends, the truth descends from the apostles, but it's also apostolic in the sense that we are the sent out people. That's what the word apostolic means. Apo means out. You go to a movie theater in Springfield, you'll see a sign up there in the dark that says exit. That means out. You go to a church in Greece, I'm not making this up, it says some variant of apo, out. And the other word is stole, it means to be sent. And this is not a religious word, this is a military word. We get this from Thucydides in the Peloponnesian War. And when the two armies engaged, they would withdraw for a temporary truce, and they would parley with one another. And there was one military guy who was sent out to the other side to take them a message. And he was the apostle, the sent out guy, which was kind of a lousy job because... Uh, he also tells the story they didn't like the message. They cut his head off, put it in a catapult, and throw it back to the other army. But that's, that's a different story. But the church is sent out. Are we? Do you have a sense in your soul that you are sent out? Jesus had two words in his vocabulary. Come and go. Go into all the world and make disciples. Or hearing from John, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We are the sent ones because Jesus was sent. And so we are sent and embrace being sent. You know, I think of the college minister I support at the University of Kansas. I give him a little bit of money each month to make his ministry possible. You know why I do that? Because... When I was a college student and utterly clueless, there was a college minister there who took me under his wing and taught me the Bible for the first time in my life. I thought John 3.16 was the men's room on the third floor. And this man taught me to read the Bible. I'm here because somebody believed, him sent, believed himself to be sent for my sake. And so I want our church to get behind this and get excited about this. Listen to these words from Teresa of Avila. She writes, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks with compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses the world. Yours are the hands, 
Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are the body. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Your eyes are the eyes with which he looks, with compassion on the world. Christ has no body now but yours. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Some of you may know that wonderful poem by Edward Markham. Uh, This was picked up by Captain and Tennille. Uh, I was listening to them in a piece of music from 50 years ago, and I've been singing it all weekend. But this is what Edward Markham wrote. He drew a circle to shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Jesus looked at that Gentile city across the ravine, and he said, they're part of my vision. You come across passages in the psalm about destroying the enemies of God, and I kind of flinch, maybe you flinch when you read those, but how do we destroy God's enemies? By making them our friends. And this is the ministry that Christ calls us to do with him. So I want to conclude by repeating the best sermon I ever heard. Don't get nervous, it's only three sentences long. But I went to a missionary conference up in northwest Pennsylvania. They did a missionary conference with 1,200 high school and college students. And Edward uh, 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 Fairman, who headed that whole conference, got up and he gave a sermon in three sentences. He said, first, be a missionary. Two, if you cannot be a missionary, then support missions. Three, if you cannot be a missionary and you cannot support missions, then get converted because you do not know the Lord Jesus. That's our call this Sunday, Mission Sunday. Let us embrace the mission Christ laid on us as servants of the Lord to serve this Catholic world which he loves. I want to conclude this sermon by inviting you to join me with a prayer. It's found in your bulletin. So please pray this prayer in unison with me, together. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen.